This gospel message is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Hour, a ministry of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, a Reformed denomination that strives to be faithful to the Word of God and the historic confessions of the Reformed faith, also known as Calvinism. In love for our great God, we proclaim the Christian faith and life that is founded on God's sovereign particular grace. As God's Word is expounded, we pray that these messages are a blessing to you. Romans chapter 8 is one of the most cherished passages in the entire Bible, and especially verses 28 through 39 is much loved. That passage perhaps is well known to you. It begins with the words, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And it concludes with the persuasion that each believer has that there is nothing that can ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We must be clear on God's purposes in these verses, the verses 28 through 39 of Romans chapter 8. What is this wonderful section intent to accomplish within us? And the answer is that God's purpose in these verses is that you and I, as his children, be unshakably sure that we have a rock-like certainty of our salvation in order that we might be able to suffer well in the path of obedience to Jesus Christ. The apostle intends to build in our hearts a security and unshaken assurance so that we might have help when we are called to suffer well in the path of obedience to Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 28, we are given the assurance that everything works together for our good to those who are called according to God's grace and mercy. Verses 29 and 30, the apostle went on to say that we have been freely predestinated to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and that all those predestinated will also be called, justified, and glorified. He has driven the assurance of our salvation into the rock of God's sovereign and eternal predestination. He went on in verses 31 and 32 to teach us that no one can successfully be against us and that God has given His own Son unto our death and hell and therefore we have the assurance that God will give us all things necessary with Christ. In verses 33 and 34 that we look at today, he goes on to say that no one can lay a charge against us in heaven or on earth, since it is Christ that died, rose, is at the right hand of God the Father, and now intercedes for us. Therefore, no one can condemn us. And God's purpose in all of this, in telling us this spectacular and breathtaking truth, is that we be filled with assurance so that when verse 35 comes, we might be able to endure. Verse 35 reads, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? The point of the passage is that the massive love of Christ and the gracious certainty of our salvation is designed of God not for us to escape the difficulties and trials and evils of this life, but that we might triumph through them. It may be an undiagnosable illness that has left you on your back. It may be the loss of a job. It may be fear of cancer. 
It may be a financial squeeze or a burden of heart of every different shape. There is no escape from these things as a child of God, but there is triumph through them. The intention of the Apostle is to build in us a rock-like assurance in order that when suffering comes, we may suffer well in the name of Christ and stay ourselves in the path of obedience. God's purpose is to deepen and make unshakable our assurance in Christ so that we will suffer well in the path of obedience to Jesus Christ. These things will come. These sufferings, these difficulties, these trials, they will surely come. But when they come, based upon this assurance that is in Jesus Christ, they shall not remove us from our certainty, but we shall be able to triumph through them. This is the point then. Security in Christ, standing upon the unshakable certainty of our salvation by grace, gives us the grace to suffer well, not to sin easily, not to sin indifferently. The certainty of salvation is not a bulletproof vest so that we may put ourselves into sinful ways with immunity to party, drink, swear, live with bitterness in our hearts and unforgiveness. No, Do not say to the certainty of our salvation, Oh, good! So in addition to living the American dream of wealth, possessions, and the life of the world, I can also have heaven as well. So many in the church have a faith like that. And it is a faith that is bond of the devil. And it will not stand. We are saved. We have the absolute certainty of our salvation in order that we might suffer well for the sake of Christ and continue in the path of obedience. In verses 34 and 35 of Romans 8, the Apostle is asking questions. He is on the attack. He is challenging every opponent to his salvation. We have a sense of his boldness and fearlessness. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. He gives questions, but he intends us to furnish the answers. He expects the answers to be obvious. He wants to draw us in to this. He wants us to be engaged. Notice these questions. Both of them deal with the issue of our justification before God or Both of them are asking the question, is there anything or anyone out there who can stand up before God and say that there is yet guilt, guilt of our sins before Him? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who is he that condemneth? Can anyone bring a suit? Can anyone charge the supreme court of God? Can anyone come and say, there is yet unforgiven sin that belongs to us. Who is he that condemneth? Who is he that shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? So the questions deal with the reality of our justification before God and are intended to emphasize and to underscore that we have been justified in the precious work of Jesus Christ and there is nothing that can be found to condemn us before the presence of God. And notice with me also that in the question, the focus is on the one who has justified us. We read, Who 
shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect, it is God that justifies. Then we read, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. The emphasis falls upon the one who has done this work for us. It is God. It is Christ. The effect then of the challenge is this. Universe and all inhabitants, all humanity, devil, demons, all who would stand up before God to condemn, who among you can possibly condemn us? For it is God, it is Christ who has justified us. We must listen very carefully to this. There are many voices that will arise also within us to condemn us and to indicate and to indict us rather and to say that we cannot possibly be forgiven and be, in a, and be a child of God. We look at the testimony of our own conscience as the Holy Spirit works within us and we see much sin. And then there is the devil. And no doubt the Apostle Paul has the devil in mind. Sometimes we are not even aware that we are being oppressed by Satan in our thoughts, in our feelings. We might be performing a mindless task and suddenly Satan is at work, not just tempting, but attempting to infiltrate our thinking and oppressing us and saying, but look at yourself. How can it possibly be true that you are saved, that Christ would love you, that your sins are forgiven? The Apostle, the Holy Spirit in this scripture means to teach us that we must get blunt with the devil, that we must be bold, that we must be courageous. We must say, listen here, devil, little Satan, you are bringing a charge against me You are pointing out how it is impossible for me to be forgiven. It is God. It is Christ. God has pronounced my pardon and my righteousness in the blood of Christ. It is a settled matter before God. You can stir up the whole world to kill me. But God has declared me righteous and justified. The Apostle points us to Christ's triumph as the reason why no one can condemn us. Notice there are four aspects here of the work of Christ in verses in verse 34. Those four aspects of the work of Jesus Christ are his death, his resurrection, his being seated at the right hand of God, and then at last his presence there of making intercession for us. We read Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now, any one of those works of Jesus Christ would be enough to establish that there is no condemnation for us. All four of them make it massive. And note with me that they are arranged in a certain order that the one that is given after each one is yet greater than the one before. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Can there be anything more important than that? Well, the apostle says, Yea, rather, even more, that is risen again. The resurrection is even more clear in its proof that there is no condemnation. And then we would say, Well, then we can't imagine anything greater than for us, than that Jesus arose from the dead, up from the grave he arose, we sing. But Paul says, 
who is even at the right hand of God. And then we would say, well, how could there be anything added to that? Our crucified, risen Savior is at the right hand of God, controlling all things. Therefore, there can be nothing that can be against me or condemn me. Nothing can add to that. And the Apostle says, who also maketh intercession for us. All of these things now, building and all of them combined, all of them shine brightly that there is no possibility of condemnation against the child of God. And then I want you to notice that in all of these things, the focus is on Christ. We have the lift of the list here of the mighty deeds of Jesus Christ by which he has triumphed over our sin and condemnation. It is Christ. And these words imply a personal knowledge of faith in him. These words imply the wondrous grace of God whereby you have been united to Jesus Christ by a true and living faith that you believe in Him, that you know Him, and looking to Him and His matchless work, you say there is no condemnation for me before God. Let's look at those four wonderful works, if only briefly. It is Christ that died. We see Him by faith crucified upon Calvary's cross. We see the crown of thorns upon His head, His back raw and bloody, descending down into the bowels of death. We see the cross as the platform from which he stepped out into the eternity of God's wrath, into the darkness and torment of eternal punishment which our sin deserved. Paul's words imply his perfect and amazing willingness. We read, he gave himself, literally we read, he gave himself to death. He did not get caught up in a tragic train of events. He was not simply swept along to the cross. It was not simply beyond his control. But he gave himself to all of these things, willingly, sacrificially. He said in John 10, verse 18, I lay down my life. No man takes it from me. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again, deliberately, knowing all for whom he would suffer. He gave himself. Willingly. And he did so because of the eternal love of God. Romans 5 verse 8, But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Then we read the resurrection. It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again. Is risen again means that God raised him. He died willingly. Yea, rather, he is raised by God. He is raised by, Romans chapter 6, verse 4, the glory of God the Father. And it means that the Father looked upon the grave of his Son. And what did the Father feel? He felt massive satisfaction in what his Christ, what his Son had achieved upon the cross. He saw his Son's work upon the cross as a perfect work. He saw that guilt and curse and judgment had been forever removed through his sacrificial sin-bearing and God raised him up. God said, well done. It is over. It is finished. You are worthy of life as the head of the church. You do not belong in the grave. Rise up, my son. And then we read, it is Christ who died who is risen, who is even at the right hand of God. 
And that means that he was brought by God personally to the place of absolute authority and power. All his enemies have been subdued beneath his feet. Ephesians 1 verse 21. He has been crowned with glory and honor, angels, principalities, and powers being made subject to him. 1 Peter 3 verse 21. Jesus rules. We talk of health care, the Middle East, the economy, cancer, nerve endings, gallbladders, special needs children. Jesus rules. Rules over all things for the good of the church. And then number four. It is Christ who also maketh intercession for us. It is Christ that died, was raised by God the Father, now at the right hand of God. It is Jesus who rules over all things, and he makes intercession for us. We might ask, now if all the work of our salvation is done upon the cross and in the resurrection, why do we need an intercessor? And the answer is that today and every day, a glorious moment happens. Jesus does something for us. He does not add to the ground of our salvation. He does not reappear upon the earth in order to suffer so that we might have salvation. He does not try to enhance that salvation. But every day, Jesus presents a perfect salvation accomplished once in His cross and resurrection before the Father as being complete. And God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit smile. And then there is a cry of a child of God on earth and in an instant on eagle's wings grace is given to everyone who cries to God in the blood of Jesus Christ. This is very personal. Paul says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Are you one of the elect? Paul says, verse 34, Who also maketh intercession for us? Are you one of the us? It is by grace, through faith. And faith in Jesus Christ cherishes these words of God. Faith loves the work of Christ. Faith lives in the work of Christ. Faith trusts the work of Christ. And faith is ready, ready now to obey, to follow Christ, and to suffer well in obedience to Christ. Faith, hearing what God has done, lays me down in sleep and rest, in the midst of trial and sorrow, pain and uncertainty, doubt and fear, and says, If God be for me, who can be against me? I've read recently of a pastor who wrote of his experience when a member of his congregation committed suicide. The man who committed suicide was a family man with four children and a wife. And the pastor asked himself what possessed this man to do such a thing. And after much prayer and struggle, he came to the answer that It was not what possessed the man that caused him to take his life, but it was what he did not possess, what he did not apprehend. He did not apprehend all that God is for us in Christ. This is why you were created, 
this is what it means to live, to know God and to enjoy Him forever, to know God's deep, deep love in Jesus, which has justified us in His presence, to know all that is in Christ by grace alone is given to us, in order that now we may go and we may obey and we may suffer well in the path of obedience, in the perfect security that is in Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank Thee for Thy precious Word. We pray that it may be bound this day upon our hearts. In Jesus' name do we pray. Amen. The Gospel message you have just heard was sponsored by the Protestant Reformed Churches through its radio program, The Reformed Witness Hour. We hope that you have been edified and encouraged by this message. If you would like more information about the Reformed faith or the Protestant Reformed Churches, feel free to visit our website at reformedwitnesshour.org or email us at mail at reformedwitnesshour.org.